Welcome to the Chan with the Plan, the podcast. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Donald Gregory James. He has 35 years of NASA experience. And what I wanted him to come on the show to talk about is how manners is the key foundational components for career success, not just having the smarts to get there. His book, Manners, will take you where brains and money won't. Wisdom from Mama and 35 Years at NASA comes out February 2nd of this year. And we're going to talk briefly about that book at the end, as well as his knowledge and foundation of how Manners helped him propel his career at NASA. So without any further ado, let's dive into the conversation with Donald Gregory James. Hey, Donald. Hey, Max. How are you doing? Good. How about you? How are you um, kicking off the new year? Well, it's uh, four days in and um, so far so good. You know, I'm uh, uh, excited about the possibility that we can get past this problem with the virus and um, the elections being behind us. Uh, it's always my favorite time of the year when the days are getting longer. 100% agree. And what I found interesting about your profile is about how manners can actually help accelerate your career growth. Uh, for me personally, I've only really heard about manners when it's like watch your manners at the dinner table. So can you tell me more about uh, manners and how it pertains to you and you, your career growth? Yeah, thank you for that. So when I retired from NASA, I worked at NASA for 35 years. And I started reflecting on my career and, you know, where, where I got to in my career and becoming, you know, a senior leader with NASA. And, you know, I was thinking that, you know, I wasn't really the, I wasn't a straight A student and didn't have perfect SAT scores. And, you know, you have to be pretty smart to work in NASA. And I think I was smart enough to, to be there. But I, when I started thinking about how it was that I was able to do what I did it occurred to me that a lot of the training that I learned from my mother, who was really big on manners and the training that I learned at NASA played a large role. Um, but it occurred to me that manners, as um, I thought about it, is much broader than the kinds of things that you would expect, you know, like where to, how to set a table and whether you should stand up if someone comes in the room or things like that, you know, because there's a lot of things like politeness and, and courtesies and protocol and etiquette that I think are part of it. But I began to see manners in a much uh, broader light. Um, it was, I really saw it as the complete way that you show up as a person. So for example, for me, manners includes things like nonverbal communication, how you how you carry your body, how you present yourself. Um, it ta it's about what you say and how you say it. It's also about what you don't say and how you don't say certain things. So it really includes a lot of things. I think for some people it might suggest that it includes personality. You've probably been with people who have strange personalities and if you were to ask yourself, gosh, would I want that person on my team, you're not really sure about it, even though you're not sure why. 
So people like that could have perfectly good, you know, manners in the sense that, you know, they do things that are proper, but there's still something about them that gives you pause. So I began to really explore this in the context of how I thought I was able to be successful at NASA. And I felt that, um, particularly after a talk that I gave when a young man asked me, you know, what I would advise myself if I can go back in time and talk to myself just as I was starting my career. And I said, you know, I would really tell young Donald, you really need to work on your manners because it's going to do you well. So I kind of view manners as it's kind of like a PDF in relationships. You know, it works on all platforms. So if you really get your foundation down and, and you develop those range of skills, but you're also willing to look inward to yourself and how you show up to people, I think you'll find that you'll do much better in a work environment. The last thing I'll say is just that from my own experience with NASA, I saw how there are people who are very, very smart who ended up not doing very well. They either lost their jobs or got fired or they got, you know, sent away and there was nothing wrong with them intellectually. Um, they were very capable people. They went to great schools. But there was something about their manner that was problematic. And it was deemed that, you know, they just weren't a good fit for the team. Um, I know astronauts that never will see space because it turns out that even though they were fully qualified to be an astronaut, you know, they turns out that they there's something about their manner that they ultimately decided wouldn't be a good idea to put them with a crew of people where everybody is depending on everybody else, you know, just to stay alive in many cases. So I wanted to explore this in depth. And, um, and that's what culminated in the book, which is really targeted for early career professionals and students who are really trying to understand what does it really take to make it in an organization like NASA? And, you know, do you have to be the smartest kid in the block? And what I say to those kids, being smart isn't good enough. So it's um, it's a it's a tricky topic, but it's one that I think is worth exploring in depth. Just going back to what you said, when it comes to astronauts not being able to go into space, it's not because they're not intellectually smart. They didn't have the manners required to go into space. Like based off their manners, they were not they didn't deem fit to go into space. Is, is that what I'm hearing correctly? Yes. Now, I don't want to suggest that it happens a lot, but it has happened. You know, when we put out a call to hire astronauts, we get tens of thousands of applications. And typically, they're only going to hire maybe 10 or 12 per class. Sometimes the classes are larger. Sometimes they're just, you know, small. So when you get down, when you do your down select, Max, and you get down to like the final 100 people, I can assure you that the last hundred candidates are all super qualified. They're all off the charts smart. You know, they went to great schools. They're very capable people. So the question is, how do you, out of the hundred people who, you know, you can literally throw a dart at all of them and they would probably be perfectly good astronauts. How do you go from a hundred down to 10 or 12? And I've actually interviewed astronauts and I've interviewed people who have interviewed astronauts and I've interviewed the people who are in charge of the selection. And a lot of times it comes down to how they watch these candidates interact with their 
fellow astronauts, how they behave, sometimes even outside of the work environment. Uh, there's a case where I heard about a, I don't know if it was an astronaut or, or another person that was applying for a job, but they went out to, to a bar and, you know, for drinks. And it turns out that um, one person who was, you know, a candidate got very caustic with a server, you know, at the bar. Uh, because he wanted to demonstrate that, you know, he was in charge and he wanted to buy drinks for people and all of that. Well, this t- this rubbed the other people the wrong way because they felt that, you know, he might have exhibited good manners during his interview and all the other aspects of his work. But then when you get outside of your work environment and see how they really are, you got to see what some people would call their true colors. So, these are the kinds of things that I'm talking about is the actual essence of how you show up in the world. And, and I'm just here to say that, you know, even for the best and brightest, uh, there are some that don't make it because of that. And that's what I wanted to explore. Just to add to that example uh, you shared with us, I read that there was this story about how this person brought this uh, candidate it was part of a job interview. Uh, so the hiring manager brought a candidate out to dinner and he was measuring how the candidate responded in terms of treating the waiter, uh, treating the hostess, how that person was treating uh, the people of the staff at the restaurant. And the inter- the hiring manager was evaluating their behavior towards these people and the candidate didn't do too well and the hiring manager never actually extended that job offer to this candidate. So that's a perfect example of how manners could actually hinder your success in terms of landing of various types of roles in the marketplace. That's right. That's exactly right. And here's, here's the thing about it. If if you're someone who believes that it's important to have good manners and then you set yourself out to work on those skills, the thing you have to be careful of is appearing as if you have, for example, gone to acting school. And what you learned in acting school is called the Good Manners Act. And then you try to deploy your Good Manners Act in a variety of environments. Because sometimes people can see through that, and we sometimes refer to that as uh, being phony. I'll give you a great example, a short story. I was on a business trip to Atlanta, Georgia, and I came up to the hotel, and the young man who was the doorman came up to me, and he was just so nice and polite, and, hello, sir, how are you today? So great to see you. And he took my bags in, and throughout our entire interaction up until... We got to the um, the check-in counter where, you know, we parted ways. You know, he was just over the top. I would put him somewhere in his late 20s. The feeling that I got after he left was, yes, he was really polite, but it felt like he was polite because he went to polite school. He went and learned how to treat customers. And my my thought was... I bet when this kid goes home and he's hanging out with his buddies and his family that he doesn't act the way he acted with me. So I say that that's being inauthentic. And in the book that I write, I talk about the importance of authenticity. 
And it's almost impossible to train yourself to be authentic. Uh, but it, it, I think over time, if you cultivate um, uh, your habits of authenticity and really try to understand what that means, uh, at some level, it's about a sense of genuineness about yourself. It's not an excuse to, to have no filters where you just say whatever's on your mind or you, you reflect back something that you don't like in a person. But it really is more about who you are as an individual and having that personality, that essence, those manners, if you will, really reflect the genuine person in a way that, you know, people feel like they they want to connect with you. This this guy, I didn't feel that way. So it, it's it's important to know know the distinction of that because you can give off airs in an interview and do all the right things, but you come away feeling like, I'm not sure I really know who this person really is. I think that's a big problem with uh, Gen Z, uh, the newest generation going into the uh, workplace, is that they think they have, they have to portray some type of persona at work, and then they're not, they're completely different people uh, at home, right? So they have their work persona and they have their uh, personal persona. But in order to be authentic, you should act this way, the same way you act at work and at home, right? Well, I, I would submit that if you act differently enough to the point where people feel like they're not getting the real you, okay, then, then you can create a sense of suspicion like, well, can I trust this person? Or is he, you know, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people in my NASA career, mostly student interns that want to work. And, you know, many of them, uh, I, I could tell, read the book on interviewing, right? They showed up early. They had, they dressed nicely. They, you know, they stood up and looked me in the eye and shook my hand. And, and they did all the, the right things uh, using air quotes. And yet in the course of the interview, I just felt like I didn't really know who this person really was. And I really felt like I wanted to have a better sense of that so that um, if I were to put him or her on a team, that there's nothing that's going to be uncovered that is going to be a surprise that could cause a problem. And, that, and that's kind of what I mean by authenticity. And so it's it's important to understand that sometimes the way you are as an individual is the source of a problem with why you're not getting promoted, why you're not getting invited to the cool parties, why you're not getting those great job assignments, and you don't know why that's happening. And so I talk about how important it is to have a team of people in your life that you really trust, that you invite them to tell you tell you the truth as they see it about how you're showing up in the world. Because sometimes it's so subtle, it's so difficult to see because we have blind spots that we don't know that we're actually doing it. Um, I had a business colleague, just to give you a case in point, who never really understood that he was not a good listener. Even when we talked to him about it and, and modeled good listening skills for him, he had a problem. He would cut his colleagues off. He just he was being very righteous about his viewpoint about things. And he never saw how that really bothered his colleagues because he felt 
that they just couldn't see his point of view on things. So he kind of missed the forest for the trees. So it's important to really spend some time understanding these dynamics, uh, particularly if you find yourself, you know, not doing very well in an organization or not understanding why you're not getting the great assignments or you're not getting promoted. It could be you. That, that's actually a great example. You said that you've uh, interviewed a lot of people uh, for NASA. So how could you tell the difference between someone that was reading the book on interviewing and was actually really authentic with their answers? You know, it's a sense. And I would say that uh, I did not have that ability early in my career. I developed it uh, much later in my career. And I'm not sure I could describe what it is. It's a feeling that I have about individuals. And I have to be careful because sometimes I'm not correct about, you know, my assumptions. I've interviewed people that I actually recommended that we didn't hire. And then um, the other people in the interviewing group uh, felt differently. And it turns out the person did quite well. So you don't always get it right. It's like when I, later in my career, I could walk into a meeting and I could tell just by walking into the room that something wasn't right. I couldn't put my finger on it. You can, you get clues, right? It's kind of quiet or people are all looking at their phones or there seems to be some coldness going on. And then you start the meeting and people are giving very short answers. And so you kind of triangulate a lot of information that you're picking up, your visual information about people, your auditory information, and you kind of develop a, a pattern that, you know, maybe there's something wrong here. And more often than not, when I was conducting a meeting and I felt that there was something amiss and I took a moment out of the meeting just to check it out, it turns out that there, you know, there was an issue. Or I would talk to some colleagues after the meeting was over to find out that, you know, you know what the problem was. So it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell, but it's just a feeling you get that, you know, this person that I'm interviewing, I'm getting the interview act. I'm getting the, I studied all the books on how to interview properly, and I want to get it just right because, wow, I want to work for NASA. And, you know, they, they use jargon terms or they use acronyms or, you know, they want to tell me about how great they were in calculus and things like that. I've had all of that happen to me. And yet, you know, I just felt that it was, they were trying too hard in a sense. So, it's difficult, but over time you develop you develop um, you know a sense about these things if you choose to pay attention. And I did. I spent a lot of time just paying attention to the dynamics of human interaction. Well, as the saying goes, there's a difference between showing passion and showing flattery, right? Yes, it is absolutely. You know, and I I appreciate people who are very passionate about what they believe in. I just want them to be authentically passionate, right? I want to know that that's just kind of who they are as an individual, even if I don't agree with their positions about things. You know, I admire people who are very committed to certain things. So um, it's a it's a I th it's a challenging topic because the last thing that I want a student to do or an early career professional to do is to say to me, well, can you just give me the checklist of things that I need to do to have good manners so that I can go off and do it so that I can do better? Because my response is going to be, you're not going to find it. You know, this is, this is like saying, you know, give you a checklist on how to, you know, be, you know, 
I don't know, maybe a, a professional athlete. There's so many factors that are involved and maybe your body is just not able to do it for certain reasons or not. I don't really know, but um, it, it, this is not a checklist kind of a thing. Um, you have to be willing to work at it. And more, the most important thing is you have to be willing to admit that if there is a problem that you're experiencing, that the problem is probably staring at you in the mirror. I understand from what you said earlier that your book coming out uh, in February, uh, it's going to be geared towards uh, students and entry-level professionals. So what are some of the uh, biggest mistakes that uh, entry-level professionals uh, go into the corporate world um, experience? Like, What are some myths that they've initially had in college, but then they realize that that's not actually the case in the working world? Right. So... So one of the things that I saw in my career, particularly later on with early career professionals, is the um, unwillingness. And this is harder for introverts and people who like to work alone, and some scientists and engineers are like that. But the unwillingness to cultivate relationships with um, who I, what I would call elders in the community, people who've been around NASA for a while and uh, other folks who could um, help you understand kind of how things work. I mean, I did this up until the very last job that I had. Now, you could assume that, you know, by the time I became an associate administrator that I didn't need to do things like this. But I can tell you the very first thing that I did when I got my new job, because it was at a new location at NASA that I had not worked before. I visited there on business trip, but never worked before is that I went to a very good friend of mine that I've known throughout my career and had a talk with him. And I, I literally said, so what do I have to do to keep myself out of the doghouse around here? And so then he laughed and then he told me some things. And he also told me some of the people that I can trust and I need to go talk to about kind of the way the world works. And I set up meetings with every single one of them. And I went and talked to him and I said, hey, you know, I've been with NASA for a long time, but I'm a new kid on the block here, and I just want to know, you know, who I can trust and what do I need to do to stay out of trouble. So it's it's reaching out to people to ask them to help you, and to continually pay attention to, um, you know, it's an old adage that just because you you have a title doesn't mean you're the most powerful person in the room. Sometimes the most influential and powerful people in the room aren't the ones that have the biggest title. Uh, sometimes the secretaries and the janitors have more information to share with you that could help you than some of the top people. So you just have to, and I made friends with the security guards and the janitors. I knew them all and I talked to them all. So it's really cultivating a network of people who can help you out. And I think that's one of the most important things you could do. Just to add to that, in terms of you uh, being friends with uh, everybody at NASA, there's this story, I think it's uh, some CEO or some high executive, and he told uh, a story where uh, it was in university, a business school, and he had he was going into uh, a class uh, with an A+, or 4.0 GPA, whatever you want to call it, and the exam, it wasn't a hard exam. Like He was studying for it as if it was an actual exam. And the exam was just one question. And it was, who is the janitor that cleans uh, the, the, the building, right? Yeah. And the executive didn't know, and he, he failed the exam. And it <laughs> brought his uh, 4.0 GPA right back down. And it goes to show that 
just because they don't have the fancy titles doesn't mean that they could help you out for the future, right? That's a great story. And I love that, Max. And I think that's very indicative of the problem of assuming that because certain people look a certain way or they have a certain title, that they're not valuable to the organization. And I tried very hard not to make that mistake um, because you never know, you know, who you're going to be dealing with and, you know, how they could be helpful to you even subtly. So that's, that's a great story. In terms of um, what you, again, what you said before about uh, meeting with people, uh, I know there's introverts that are not comfortable like cultivating relationships. They just want to get to work and then do their work and then go home. Right. But what do you have um, advice for introverts on how to cultivate relationships by being a better communicator? Well, I'll give you an example of a couple of colleagues that I thought handled that very well. They both knew that they were introverts. Now, when I talk about introverts, um, kind of thinking about it like in the Myers-Briggs typology where introverts typically get their energy from within. They don't rely on external people for their energy. Introverts doesn't mean that they're not capable, they're not smart, they're not valuable. It just means where they like to get their energy from people, and they're often viewed as quiet and sometimes standoffish. So one of the problems is that people who are not introverts sometimes inappropriately judge people who are introverts as non-team players or people who don't want to contribute. And I made a point of, if I knew somebody was more or less introverted, particularly in a meeting, I would try to find ways, sometimes creative, to elicit you know their insights into things. And most of them were happy to, to make their suggestions even in a meeting, some of them didn't. I had to talk to them outside of the meeting. But they would give you really wonderful insights. You know, they just tended to be more quiet. What a couple of introverts I knew did is that they actually knew that about themselves. So one of the things that I feel it's important is to know yourself well enough that if you are kind of introverted, just let people know that and say, hey, look, you know what? I'm kind of an introverted person, and I typically don't speak up a lot, but I do have things to say. Um, but, you know, I might have to be asked and, um, you know, and I'm happy to contribute. So people just kind of knew that about themselves and they didn't assume that, you know, they weren't team players. And uh, we often make the mistake of labeling people from different cultures as a generic, you know, introvert group or an extrovert group. And as a leader, you really make a mistake by making assumptions about their ability to contribute to an organization. You have to change your leadership and your managership style in order to bring out the best in all of them. And if you're an early career professional, it would behoove you to know how to cultivate a great relationship with all types of people. So, so that being said, obviously, there's various personality types. So how do you adapt your style to match with other personalities so you can mesh well together, whether it's a work environment or even in a social setting? Yeah, so, you know, there's, you know, books that have been written about this. Uh, I'm not I'm not an expert in it, but I do know that, you know, there's um, research done on how to uh, mimic the style of people that you're dealing with, not in an offensive way, but more as a way of demonstrating that, you know, you're 
you're like them in some ways, whether it's your posture or whether it's your verbal communication. I always try to just be very, very aware of who I'm dealing with and recognizing, you know, what their comfort levels, you know, were and how to how to show up properly. And a lot of that I learned from the mistakes that I made. And I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I did things like, you know, if I, in an earlier in my career when I was a manager and I, I write about this in the book and I was upset with a subordinate and, you know, I'm a big guy. And so I was very direct and very clear. And I was very, um, I didn't yell, but I, you know, my voice was very intense and focused as I was, you know, dispensing my my displeasure against her. And, to, you know, to my amazement, it turns out she went to my boss in tears because she felt that, you know, I had berated her and I didn't see it that way. So the learning that I got out of that experience was it doesn't matter what I think is true about my behavior around other people. What matters is the effect that I have on them. And I have to to learn that I can have an effect on people just by doing what I think is normal and natural because it just may not be. And that's what I mean by manners, right? So, you know, I what I may call good manners for me may in fact be bad manners for somebody else. Um, I was on a business trip overseas once and I was at a uh, conference where there were exhibits and I was talking to two women from the Middle East about um, some things having to do with space exploration. When I was finished with the conversation, I automatically thrust my hand out to shake their hand or thank them for the conversation. And one of them reciprocated, but another one didn't. And I I realized in that second that, um, and I knew better, that most Muslim women uh, do not touch men who are not uh, their spouses or their close relations. And I, I knew better. And although I wasn't offended by the second woman who didn't shake my hand, I felt really bad. And I, so I apologized and I mimicked her behavior by putting my hand over my heart and I thanked her for her time and I moved on. So it's, it's being aware of things like that um, in terms of your interaction with people. Yeah, because like, again, different cultures, right? Like some countries, they don't shake hands; they might bow to each other, right? So you you really have to understand where people are coming from and be able to understand what rules that they have, so you can adapt to them accordingly, right? That's right. That's right. I think it's a sign of respect. I think it's a sign that you're willing to learn. And if you don't know, you can ask, right? You know, you can you can ask somebody. What's the? I remember we had uh, at NASA many, many years ago, we had an unusual visitor. It was the crown prince of Tonga, right? So it's the first time that I would, and I was responsible for this person when he came to the center. And I had never dealt with royalty before directly. And so I remember calling the U.S. State Department. I said, so what do I call this guy? Should I shake his hand? And you know, I don't have to bow, do I? I mean, I thought we fought a revolutionary war, so we wouldn't have to do it. I mean, I was kind of being funny, but the lady I was talking to laughed. And so, but she gave me good advice. You know, she told me what was appropriate, how to refer to him. And she said, just be yourself and be respectful. 
So it's being willing to to find out, you know, how to be respectful when you're in somebody else's culture. And it also applies even within the United States. If you go to a different state or a different city, or if you're interacting with somebody who's not a part of your quote unquote tribe, right? Right. So you, you, you need to know, you know, you know, what's going to be respectful or not. And that to me is all a part of exhibiting good manners. And it works, it works in the work world. If you, if you don't understand that really well, you can find yourself being on the outside and wondering why you not, not, not let in. As the saying goes, it's always better to ask than to assume, right? Yeah, I think so. Particularly if you don't know, Um, you know, like you ask, like my mother was uh, insistent on calling people by their birth names. When my mom taught school, she had many students from Southeast Asia because this was after the Vietnam War. And there were a lot of refugees. And many of the refugees that came to the country decided to anglicize their names because they didn't want to embarrass their other fellow students because they wouldn't know how to pronounce their names. And my mother would have none of that. She would say to these kids, I want to know how your mother and father called you when you were born. And she insisted on learning how to pronounce their names correctly. And she insisted on the other students learning how to pronounce their names correctly. So to this day, if I come across a name that I'm unfamiliar with, or I don't know how to pronounce it, I'll ask somebody, you know, um, do you mind telling me how to pronounce your name properly? And if I'm curious about the name, I would ask, you know, tell me about the history of your name, you know, and you'll find out an interesting story. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people uh, do that enough because, um, like, for example, the Orient area, like uh, China, uh, Korea, or then even um, Southeast Asia, like India, Pakistan, they have a lot of these hard pronouncing names. And it seems like nowadays a lot of people are not trying to figure out how to pronounce them. They either just butcher it or they don't try at all. So it, it, you really go above and beyond if you really make an effort to pronounce someone's name. Right. And I think you would be forgiven if you don't get it just right. But the fact that you're trying and you ask and you want to know a little more about it, I think demonstrates to the person that you're dealing with that you care about that person as an individual and you respect that person. And I think that's what the point is. And so um, all of those practices and those things that we're talking about apply in the work environment and they apply when, you know, you're traveling and things of that nature. Um, people just want to feel valued as a human being. They want to feel that, that they're seen as a human being. They don't want to feel that they're seen as a label, right? So that, you know, if, if someone sees you and they put a label on you, then they have all kinds of opinions and judgments about what that label means. But they, they have missed the opportunity to really get who you are as an individual. And they may find out that you're very much like them in terms of what you care about, what you love, what you fear, what you're interested in, what you're excited about. But they couldn't see that because they were so busy fixated on the label that they associate with you, right? And it typically starts off, right, with the very simple binary, boy or girl, right? We're always fascinated, you know, is it a boy or is it a girl? Is it a boy or is it a girl? And so we have these labels that we put on people. And I'm not saying we should be genderless. I'm just saying that we have to be careful that when we have labels that we don't filter out 
more about those things about that person that it reflects their total humanity. And that's what I mean by authenticity is to be able to appreciate the total humanity of people when you're engaging with them. Well, thanks for sharing that, Donald, and really appreciate the time uh, you took uh, out of your day to share with our audience the crucial ingredients of good manners. So how can people uh, find you online and uh, what is one of the key projects you want to share uh, with our audience about? Uh, thank you very much, Max. So um, people can find me on my website. It's just my full first, middle, and last name, Donald Gregory James. So DonaldGregoryJames.com. And on the site, you'll see blogs and you'll see a uh, biography about myself and um, uh, you know, and you'll, there's ways of contacting me uh, uh, through the website. Uh, my current project is uh, the, my manners book. The complete title is Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. Wisdom from Mama and 35 Years at NASA. It's uh, available at Amazon and other bookstores. And um, I really hope people um, like the book. I wrote it with my brother, who is a captain with American Airlines. And and we had a lot of fun doing this, and we just hope that um, uh, people who read the book will find uh, some useful tools and some useful things to think about uh, as they uh, go to school and embark on their career or even life in general. So um, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to having a manners renaissance, not only in this country, but hopefully globally as well. And, and I'm just trying to do my part. Uh, when's the release date for the book? The release date is February 2nd. All right. Sounds good. Again, it was definitely a good conversation on manners and just bringing manners back to the forefront. It will really help uh, cultivate better relationships in the workplace. So thanks again. You're welcome, Max. Thank you. And I appreciate this. And good luck with this podcast. It's, it's really an awesome project. Thank you. What a great conversation with Donald Gregory James on manners in the workplace. I definitely learned a lot. However, to help all our listeners out, I'm going to recap the three main points that I took away from my conversation with Donald. Number one is that you have to be authentic. He has interviewed thousands of potential NASA candidates, and he could tell whether someone read the 101 book on interviewing and whether someone was actually passionate about actually wanting to work for NASA. So although you do need to know your one-on-ones in terms of interviewing, you should still show that authenticity and passion that a lot of employers are looking for. Number two is you should definitely, when you start in any company, is to build relationships with various people. It doesn't have to be executives all the time. It can be your coworkers, the janitor, the, the cap lady. It's all about just building that network because you have no idea who can help you build your career along the way. And finally, just be you. If you have to create a different persona because you're at work and you have to be somebody else in your personal life, then it's just not gonna be a good work relationship. Because in order for you to be truly happy, you have to be able to be comfortable with yourself at work and in your personal life. That is true congruency, and that will also give you true happiness. Again, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. 
And this is Max Chan signing off of Chan with the Plan, the podcast.